We are continuing our vision series entitled, We Are Coral Ridge. And a few weeks ago, we introduced our vision here at Coral Ridge. It's in your bulletin, and we'll flash it up on the screens as well. Our vision, what do we aspire to be as a church? We aspire to be a gospel-centered church that offers hope for all people in South Florida through reconciliation and renewal. That if, if the gospel is center of this church, and if we live a gospel-centered life, uh, then our ministries that we commit ourselves to is a ministry of reconciliation, which we talked about last week, longing to see people reconciled with God and reconciled with one another, that the world has been divorced and estranged from God, and that we are divorced and estranged from one another, Uh, but only through the message of the gospel does reconciliation happen. It's the ministry that we've committed ourselves to. The second part of that, and we're going to look at this morning, is the ministry of renewal. So the gospel not only promises a ministry and commits ourselves to a ministry of reconciliation, but also commits ourselves to a ministry of renewal, the renewal of all things as it is found on the front of your bulletin, that we are a church that believes and is committed to the reconciliation of people and the renewal of all things. And we're going to unpack that idea of renewal this morning. And we're going to do that by looking at two passages, one, Revelation 21, So if you turn there with me this morning, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll scoot on down to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. So Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and then Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Hear the word of God as it's found in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. From their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then looking at Revelation 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of, they will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this vision. I thank you for this vision that you gave John. 
a vision of what is to come, a beautiful picture of what is to come. And so for the few moments that we have left this morning together, I pray that you would preach to our souls that this would just not be seen as a vision of of history or a historical event, but something that happens inside our souls, inside of our hearts, that reminds us that, yes, the best is yet to come. And Lord, above anything else, would you remove any distraction, especially the distraction of the one who seeks to deceive us and rob us of our joy, May the Holy Spirit intervene in this moment and preach to our weary hearts so we would be made anew. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know if, um, thank you for the applause. I don't know if uh, King Solomon and I would have gotten along very well. Now, yes, King Solomon, he uh, is known as one of the greatest kings of Israel. King Solomon, after all, is the one who uh, built the temple, the the temple that the people of God had been longing for, uh, a permanent dwelling where they would no longer have to travel with the tabernacle. Yes, uh, Solomon is known as one of the greatest kings to ever reign in Israel, but I don't know if we would have gotten along so well because he tended to be a pessimist, and I struggle with pessimistic people. After all, it's in Ecclesiastes, if you remember, what does Solomon say? Solomon says, he looks out into the world, and he says, there's nothing new under the sun. You see, in our common vernacular, what Solomon was basically saying is, I look out into the world and I I, I see the sun rising and the sunset. I see people live and I see them die. And in our common vernacular, basically what Solomon was trying to say is, it's the same old, same old. This is as good as it's going to get. There really is nothing new under the sun. And so Solomon in Ecclesiastes can kind of leave you, you know, you can leave you thinking, wow, this is, this is it. It's kind of a Debbie Downer, kind of a killjoy, kind of a pessimistic person looking out in the world and saying, underneath the sun, there is nothing new. This is as good as it's going to get. And you see, for those that were living in the first century, the, the ones that were receiving this vision that John received were living in a perilous time in the first century. That The Christians that were living in the first century that received this vision of revelation from John, the apostle John himself, were living under the emperor Domitian. And Domitian was not fond of Christians. He said, oh yeah, you want to follow Jesus Christ? We'll crucify you upside down and we'll line you, your cross, uh, throughout the streets of Rome. And so you can only imagine what these Christians were thinking. They needed a vision because these Christians, probably like Solomon, were looking at the world and going, this is as good as it gets. There is nothing new under the sun And so the Christians that were perishing in the first century needed a vision. They needed something above the sun. They needed a vision of hope. 
And so the last two chapters of Revelation, are, are the, the last two chapters, chapter 21 and 22 that we just read, are not only the last two chapters of Revelation, and they're not only the last two chapters in all of recorded scripture, but are, they are the last vision of what is, what is to come. John gives us a vision of how this all will end. And for those living in the first century, they needed a vision of hope. And for you sitting here this morning, you need a vision of hope this morning. And the vision of hope that we see here is in Revelation 21 and verse 5, where in the face of Solomon saying there's nothing new under the sun, that this is as good as it gets. In the face of that word flies a better word. And in Revelation 21 verse 5, we see a vision at the end from above the sun that announces what? It's Jesus saying, behold, I do make all things new. It's a vision of hope that they needed in the first century, and it's a vision of hope that you need this morning. So for a few moments that we have together this morning, I want us to look at what are the things that Jesus is making new? And why is it that we are a church committed to the renewal of all things based on this vision of renewal here in 21 and 25? What is Jesus making new? The first thing that we see in Revelation 21 verse 1, it's the renewal of creation. It very simply says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What a beautiful picture that, that the promise isn't God taking us out of this place to some far and distant galaxy, but he's saying, I am going to make the heavens and the earth new. It's as if God is saying, wait a second, I created all of this and I'm not done with it. Just because you all messed it up doesn't mean that it's all going to be burned up in flames and I'm going to start with another plan. He says, I am going to take what I started, my heavens and my earth, and I am going to make it new. It's the announcement that God is not only the alpha, but God is the omega. You think what I did in Genesis 1 and 2 is spectacular? Wait till you see what I have for the grand finale. I am not finished with my world. I am not finished with my creation. I know you all messed it up in Genesis chapter 3, but I am not done with it yet. I am not only the alpha, but I am the omega. No one, no one is going to destroy my earth. You see, we see here the renewal of the creation. And I, what I love about this is that this promise of the renewal of the heavens and the earth, this heavens and the earth that we dwell in, flies in the face of all of the pictures that we have of heaven, floating on the clouds, floating with cherubs, playing harps. Every picture I have of heaven and every picture that we grew up with heaven, I don't want to go to that heaven floating on the clouds and playing with cherubs and playing my harp? Do you want to go to that heaven? No. I want to go to the new heavens and the new earth that are promised to me here in the scripture, a place where we will walk and we will dance and we will love and that we will sing and that we will love one another and hug one another and live one with one another in the new heavens and the new earth. What God is promising is he is going to remake what he made at creation. And we all long for it. We long for a new home. 
We long for a new creation, a place where there will be no more orphans, there will be no more abortion, no more racism, no more divorce, no more slander, no more hunger, no more spousal abuse. You long to be in a place like this because you were created for it. God created you to live in a place like this. And we see it in Genesis 1 and 2. And we messed it up. But God is on his throne saying, I am going to make all things new. You were created to be in a place like this. You see, the Bible tells us that we are citizens of heaven. But do you ever wonder why God just didn't take us all up? (laughs) Save us and take us to heaven. Get us out of here. Why doesn't he do that? Because he says this is a colony of heaven. He wants us to stay here, to bring beauty to brokenness, to be the light in the midst of darkness, to proclaim to the world that this is not your world, but this is my Father's world. And that when we see brokenness, when we see things that do not look like heaven, it is our calling as a church to push back on the gates of hell and say, no, 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 this is not your world. This is my father's world. I am bringing beauty in the midst of brokenness. I am bringing light in the midst of darkness. That is our calling. We long for a better home. When Africans were ripped from the shores hundreds of years ago and brought to North America as slaves. They needed in the midst of brokenness and hurt. They needed songs to get them through. And some of the greatest songs were written during that period of being enslaved. And after the slavery, as they were treated as subhumans, And songs were written like, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home, because they knew that there has to be a better home. And that's the song that we should sing as well. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. That this is not it, that there is a better home. And that it's our job to bring that better home here to earth to say that there is a better day coming. We are a colony of heaven and we push back against the oppression and the brokenness to give people a picture of heaven in the midst of darkness. So the first thing that we see Jesus is making new, it's the renewal of the creation. The second thing that we see here is in verse two, we not only see the renewal of creation, we see the renewal of our image, our image. We were created, it tells us in Genesis, in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God. But in Genesis chapter three, what happens? The image is distorted, the image is marred because of sin. But what happens here in verse two? of chapter 21, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Who's the holy city? Who's the new Jerusalem? It's the church. It's us. What does it say? Coming down out of heaven from God. This is beautiful. Don't miss this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 is saying is the image has been restored because of Jesus. He is not only making the creation and the heaven and the earth new, he is making image bearers new. And he makes us beautiful for who? For Jesus. 
God, through the reconciling power of the gospel, is making us beautiful as a bride adorned for her husband. Think about that. That when we appear before Jesus, it is without any blemish, it is without any mark, it is without any sin, it is without any shame. What a message for you this morning and what a message to take out into our community. For those that are broken, for those that look at their life, for those that look at what they've done with their life, with all of their blemish and all of their sin and all of their shame, and to be able to say through Jesus and through Jesus alone, you could be made beautiful in the eyes of God as a bride adorned for her husband. No blemish, no sin, no shame. The image of God fully restored in you because of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of redemption and restoration, the restoration of the original image of God. So we not only see the renewal of creation, we not only see the renewal of our image, but we also see in verses three through four, what do we see? The renewal of our relationship with God. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Finally, because what happened, what happened in Genesis 3 is that we're estranged from God. We're kicked out of the garden. We're kicked out of the dwelling place of God. And the promise here in Revelation 21 is that God, through Jesus, is renewing all things, especially our relationship with God, that we are brought back into fellowship and community with the Father. We were made for God. You see, everything we see here in Revelation is what we've been made for. We were made to live in a creation that was paradise with no sin and no shame and no blemish and no brokenness and no darkness and God renews it through Jesus. We were made to be image bearers of God with no blemish and no shame and he renews this and we were also created to have fellowship, perfect fellowship with God forever. You were made for God and he was made for you. And whether you realize it or not tonight, this morning, You are longing for a father. You are longing for only what God can do in your life. The gospel of John tells us that we are hungry people longing to be satisfied and thirsty people longing to have our thirst quenched. And Jesus reveals himself as the one, the visible expression of the invisible God, the one who satisfies all hunger and the one who quenches all thirst, fills that God-shaped void and hole in your heart. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that you get God, the one you were created for. Every night in Indianapolis at a juvenile detention center, there is a 14-year-old boy who sobs every night. And the reason he sobs every night is because he murdered his father in a fit of rage. And in the midst of his sobbing, you know what he sobs? I want my daddy. And so do you. 
and so do you. I saw a story the other day of a, of a father who had a heart attack and they were on the East Coast and the mother calls the son who's on the West Coast and says, your, your dad has had a heart attack and he is not doing well. You need to get here as soon as possible. And the son on the West Coast dropped everything. He flies over to the East Coast and he misses saying goodbye to his dad by 10 minutes. And he's crying uncontrollably and the family is trying to console him and the nurses are trying to console him. And he says, it's not just that he died It's that he never told me he loved me. And I flew here because I wanted to give him one more chance. See, we long for it. Deep down inside, we long for our father. And God says, you will be with me in the dwelling place. Your father who you were created to be with from the beginning of time reverses the curse, renews all things, and says, I will make all things new. I will make the heavens and the earth new. I will make your image new, and I will make my relationship with you new because you long for it. And the question I have for us this morning is, how do we know this is all true? What what gives us the right this morning to say, we know this is absolutely for certain that Jesus will make all things new? How do we leave here this morning with the confidence knowing that he will make the heavens and the earth new? How do we know that we, how do we have confidence and assurance that he will make our images new and that he will make our relationships new, that he will bring us into his dwelling and wipe every tear from our eyes? How do we have the assurance and the confidence that we know without a shadow of a doubt that this is how it will all end, that the renewal of all things will all be a reality? Well, we see it in chapter 22. Look at chapter 22 of Revelation. You see, chapter 21 is kind of this 30,000 feet view of what will happen in the end. And then chapter 22 gets us on the ground and we get to see what exactly will this new heavens and the new earth look like. And what do we see when we come down off of 30,000 feet and we see on the ground, what do we see in the midst of the new heavens and the new earth? In verse two, it says that we see a tree. What kind of tree? It's the tree of life. But there's a couple of things that are unusual about this tree, the tree of life. First of all, the tree of life, everybody has access to it. It says that the, the, the people of God are, are, are eating from it. It's yielding its fruits. It's mean it's the tree of life is not holding anything back. But it's also missing something though. And it might actually be the reason why it's not holding anybody back anymore. You see, where's the last time we saw the tree of life? see the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve who were once freely eating from the tree of life yielding its fruit to humanity and then the fall comes they are banished from the garden and what goes in front of the tree of life flaming swords which represent the justice of God that if you want to get to the tree of life you'll have to die It represents justice. It represents death. That no longer will humanity eat from the tree of life. And if they even try, surely they will die. But here, 
In Revelation 22, people are once again eating freely from the tree of life without any flaming swords. Why? Because the justice of God has been satisfied. There was a man and his name was Jesus. And Jesus went through the flaming swords and satisfied the justice, even sacrificing his life for you. You see, we see here in Revelation 22 the result of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus laying down his life, sacrificing his life, satisfying the demands for the justice of God so that we would no longer have to satisfy the demands of the justice of God any longer. There are no more swords and people are freely able to now eat from the tree of life. What power the power that raised Jesus from the dead and that is now at work in you is the church. And why do we believe that Jesus is the only answer for renewal in our world? Why do we really believe that Jesus working through the church is the only hope for this world? It's because Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who had the power to satisfy the justice of God. And so when we go out in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sin, in the midst of despair, when we walk out of this place and we see the brokenness on our streets and we turn on social media and we see brokenness and we turn on our television and we see brokenness and decay and sin and there's something inside of us that tempts us that I have by my own power and my own strength to fix it, I pray that you would never forget that you do not have the power to fix it but it is Jesus working through his church and Jesus through his church alone has the power to bring beauty to brokenness, to reverse the curse, to make all things wrong with this world right again. You do not have the power by your own accord, but the power of Jesus, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is now at work within you. You see, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that promises us the renewal of all things. That Jesus going through the swords and sacrificing his life and putting the swords away forever through his resurrection, announcing that sin and shame and brokenness have been defeated once and for all. That is what allows us to lift up our eyes and lift up our heads this morning to know without a shadow of a doubt that there really is one that promises no more mourning, no more tears, no more death, because Jesus and Jesus alone took on our tears and our shame and our death so that we could live forever. Nothing in this world can promise this. No social activism, no politician, no leader can promise this. FDR promised us a new deal. JFK promised us a new frontier. Jesus promises us the renewal of all things to make all things new. And only a gospel-centered church that trusts in the promises of God and believes in his death and resurrection can this be made a reality. Let me close with this. There's a by a gentleman by the name of Thomas Vanderwood. He had a large family that lived in the Midwest and they were out working on their farm one day. Thomas Vanderwood and his and his boys. One of his sons happened to have Down syndrome. 
His name was Josie. He was 20 years old. And as they were working on the farm, Josie, 20 years old, accidentally fell through a crack and fell into a eight-foot septic tank. Fell into the sewage. They began to drown. Well, Thomas Vanderwood, the father, without even blinking an eye, jumps into the septic tank, jumps into the sewage, goes underneath the sewage, and lifts up Josie on top of his shoulders so that he could be rescued. Thomas Vanderwood begins to tread in the sewage, as they call the paramedics. But eventually his legs give way, he closes his eyes, and he sinks down into the sewage of the septic tank, and he dies. It was too late. Sacrificed his life for his son, went into the brokenness and the sewage, literally, to save his son. Well, it's interesting that this story got picked up And it got picked up by a number of magazines and newspapers, but it's not the magazines and newspapers you would think of. This did not get picked up by Christianity Today and World. It actually got picked up by a lot of secular newspapers and magazines. And one of the titles struck me of a very secular newspaper, and the title of it is Atheism Can't Explain This. And a secular non-Christian author writing for a secular non-Christian newspaper writes this, we feel moved by the Vanderwood's sacrifice precisely because it seems selfless. It is the opposite of evolutionary self-interest. But why is that? What is it about the story of a man who willingly embraces a revolting, horrifying death in order to save his son that moves us to tears? Why does it seem somehow like a beautiful painting or piece of music, a fleeting glimpse of perfection in an imperfect world? I'd say that only theism offers an adequate explanation. And that Christianity might do the best job of all. You see, Christianity teaches that the creator of the universe became incarnate as a human being and then allowed himself to be unjustly tried, convicted, punished, and killed in the most painful, humiliating manner possible, all as an act of gratuitous love for the very people for whom he died. Why does Van, Van der Woods act of sacrifice move us? Maybe because in freely dying for his son, he gives us a fleeting glimpse of that love that moves the son and the stars, which is to say he gives us a fleeting glimpse of God. That might sound outlandish to atheists, those that don't believe in God, but for my money, it comes closer to the truth and does more to explain the otherwise mysterious experience of noble sacrifice than any other compelling account. You don't buy it? I dare you to come up with a better storyline. If Christianity is true... Maybe there is hope after all. Coleridge, we have a hope that is otherworldly. And it is our calling and our privilege to go out into this world in about a few minutes and announce that Jesus is on his throne and behold, he is making all things new. We have a calling and a privilege to go out into the world and to press against the darkness and the brokenness to tell them that there is one who is on his throne that is making all things new. We have a calling to give people a picture of heaven 
that the best is yet to come, that there is more to life than this. This message and promise of renewal through the gospel makes us the most optimistic people in the world, bringing redemptive grace to a broken, hurting world that is desperate for beauty. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? This one that through his life and death and resurrection can make all things new, just not out in the world, but in your life and heart this morning, that can give you an otherworldly hope in the storms of life, so that when you hear the whisper of Solomon say, there is nothing new under the sun, you can shout back and say, I know a king, and he is making all things new.